You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who's been covering the NBA for 538 and GQ. Michael, the last time we talked on Thursday, we didn't have a resolution to uh, the interminable uh, presidential election. But on Saturday, they officially called it. All the networks did. All the newspapers did. And there were parties uh, in the streets in many American cities. Uh, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. There were also parties online, Michael. I'm sure you saw it. An awful lot of NBA players were having a little victory lap, uh, I think, because of uh, how hard they had worked to encourage people to vote. And obviously, the the longstanding tension between the NBA community and President Trump uh, over all sorts of issues involving kneeling during protests and uh, you know White House visits and, and the list goes on. So we're going to dig in a little bit uh, here to the NBA reaction, I think, to this event. But first, uh, what about your reaction, Michael? Where were you? How did you take the news in? Um, did the historic moment live up to your expectations or not? Uh, thrilled. I'm thrilled with the results, uh, first and foremost. Want to get that out of the way. Um, uh, I-, I was in a car driving from my apartment in Brooklyn with my wife to visit uh, her family in Michigan when my phone basically just exploded with text messages from my parents, my brother, um, uh, my all the group texts that I'm in with friends, different friend circles that have been just racked with anxiety over the past few days, uh, everyone that th- those were blowing up. And I couldn't pull over um, because of where we were, but if I if I could have, I would have. And instead, we just basically had like a five hour uh, house party inside the car. We just turned the music up. We're dancing. It was wonderful. I was going to say maybe you could have Siri read aloud all your text messages while you were driving. <laughs> that would have been probably like an incredible uh, audio experience there. So I was at home. I kind of woke up just before the news broke on Saturday. Obviously, you know, three hours behind here on the Pacific time. And I kid you not, Michael, for months, I just kind of anticipated that, you know, if Trump lost, there would be people like running through the streets naked. I just, for whatever reason, thought it was going to be like the wildest party that Los Angeles has ever seen. And I do think there were certain areas that, you know, celebrated and were doing the street dancing stuff and all of that here. But my neighborhood was just eerily quiet and it really has been pretty eerily quiet for months and months, you know, both before and after the bubble. I think, you know, people are taking the um, the, the lockdown stuff, you know, pretty seriously uh, around these parts. And so even though there's a bunch of Biden signs in the neighborhood, even though obviously, you know, LA and, and California is very blue, uh, there wasn't even really honking horns. I guess it was a little bit anticlimactic. And I don't know what to chalk that up to, whether it was... Um, you know, the the length of time it took the networks to call, uh, whether it was just people wanting to stick to the script on the uh, coronavirus stuff and, and not wanting to be out and about celebrating and, and gallivanting and that kind of thing. But it felt uh, a lot and surprisingly so like business as usual. So I, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, I think it's probably a reminder that we've got months, if not years to go fighting the virus. And, and that's pretty daunting. But I do think, um, 
know, those images of all the people dancing around on television mm-hmm. are pretty indelible, right? And uh, you could tell an awful lot of joy. And for me personally, I liked it when the joy was covered with the masks. I don't know about you, Michael. That that made me feel good when people were, you know, dancing to all sorts of, uh, you know, g- great music whilst trying to stay socially distanced. Please, please. <laughs> Yes, and now we will have a president who cares about these things. Uh, my neighborhood, which I was not in, unfortunately, was one of the ones that was completely popping off. And, you know, people just drinking bottles of tequila in the streets. That's just what you want to see. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 I wish I was not. Uh, I mean, I wish I was there um, on Saturday. It was like a beautiful 70 degree day in the middle of November, too, which is just incredible. Um but, you know, we have to see family, too, which is also very important. And uh, Yeah, I really hope I, none of your in-laws listen to this show. <laughs> you're, you're basically saying, like, yeah, we got dragged out to see you guys uh, in Michigan, and we missed all the fun back in New York City. I mean, what an absolute jerk, Michael Pena. Um, <laughs> let me ask you, because you are in Michigan, and obviously that was a key state here in all of this. What is the mood like uh, where you're at there? Uh, could you tell a difference once you got there? You know, every once in a while when I visit, you know, it definitely has a different vibe, of course, from Oregon or California. So you, you sort of always go through that like mini culture shock. But uh, what were your first impressions when you got there? Yeah, I mean, my wife's family is in Wayne County, which is voted blue. Um, I guess in 2016, they were pretty blue. And then in this election cycle, they were also pretty blue. So there's a few Trump flags hanging from houses that I kind of want to run past and and rip down. Um, But I won't because I'm not a lunatic. But um, that would be very incriminating. (laughs) You know, we don't want we don't want you to get kicked off Twitter or have this podcast account shut down for, uh, you know, violent threats here michael come on (laughs) so we're not committing any crimes here or promoting any crimes um but but no uh it's pretty low-key with that regard and i think people are just in the couple conversations i've had with some uh my my in-laws is just you know people are just sick of this coronavirus and finally having someone just short-term thinking finally having someone in office who's willing to do something about it is a step in the right direction because cases are still mounting to astronomical levels in this country particularly in the midwest and it's awful so hopefully we can fight back against it with a, a smart intelligent leader in office no, I'm with you. And, you know, speaking of all these uh, celebrations that we were describing earlier, I mean, I think the players really got into it on social media, too. I mean, I, I'm sure you saw LeBron James posting the meme of him blocking Andre Iguodala with, you know, Biden on, on LeBron's body and Trump on, uh, you know, Iguodala's body. Similar memes were going around involving Trey Young and Damian Lillard on some of their big, uh, you know, highlight level shots. I think you saw, you know, a lot of just general celebration posts and but I think more specifically it was guys kind of pointing back to the more than a vote movement to the players decision during the bubble to push for the arenas to be used as polling places some of these uh, activist efforts that they spent months of talking about kind of paying off and if you do look at uh, you mentioned Wayne County Detroit in Michigan you look at Milwaukee in Wisconsin you look at Atlanta in Georgia and you look at Philadelphia in Pennsylvania All four of those cities took on major prominence in this particular election. All four are predominantly black cities. All four went hugely for 
uh, you know, Joe Biden. And they all, I think, got even more attention because of the way the whole mail-in ballot thing worked, where like all the in-person votes went first and the mail-in ballots mm-hmm. came in later. And so you could really see, you know, what areas of the country is Biden making up hit the margin at the, at the fastest rate. And it was in those cities. And if you go back to some of the connections with those cities, you had guys like Tobias Harris, very vocal in Philadelphia. You had Trey Young and the Hawks turning their stadium uh, into a polling place and being very vocal and, and kind of connected down there with fair fight in Georgia. You had the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, you know, responding to the Jacob Blake shooting. You had the Sterling Brown incident kind of hanging over things there. And so big turnout, especially among black voters uh, in Milwaukee. To me, it didn't necessarily feel like a coincidence. And so when you're stepping back and kind of looking at all of this, and, and you're also realizing you know, LeBron's effort and the other uh, professional athletes with more than a vote, you know, putting millions of dollars into this to, you know, try to increase turnout, get people registered and ensure there's not kind of voter suppression tactics going on. Do you feel like these guys, I don't want to say they won the election, but didn't they have their sliver of uh, this overall pie? I mean, obviously hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of factors go into someone winning a national election, but these guys can look back with pride and say, we made a difference, can't they? Sure. I mean, I, I don't, again, I, I don't think that it is like the deciding factor at all, but I, I also, you know, can say confidently that it didn't hurt for sure. I mean, the cities that you mentioned usually vote Democrat already, but, uh, you know, all the votes haven't been counted yet, but I'm sure at the end of the day that the voter turnout will be higher than it was in the last election cycle four years ago. Um, and, you know, more than a vote, and just the general the general work done by the players association and the nba players i mean just promoting the need to register promoting um how important it is for every vote to matter and all the different ways that your vote matters and opening up polling places as you said and and making it easier for early voting to happen during a pandemic um i think one of the more important things, in addition to, you know, one of the things that LeBron that LeBron did um, with more than a vote was kind of pay the fines for convicted ex-felons in uh, Florida to vote. And obviously Florida did not turn, but that still matters. Um, and I think, like, it all comes back to education for me and educating low propensity voters and letting them know about voter suppression tactics and reinforcing the idea that getting out to the polls and voting someone out of office who clearly does not have your best interests in mind is a really good idea. So I think from that perspective, as high profile, um, loud voices with platforms that reach millions and millions of people, it it helps. It does. I don't know by what margin, but the margins here were slim in these states. So I think it's, it's, it's important. I think it's really important because of how concerted an effort it was and how many different states they tried to reach. The reason why I highlighted uh, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta uh, was because they were all in key swing states, and all of those states did not break by very much, and all of them were necessary for Biden to win, right? So, you know, if you're saying, okay, well, what total quantity of votes did these people, uh, you know, did these efforts, um, you know, account for? Well, maybe it might just be a small sliver of the overall country's votes, right? But when you're saying, okay, well, where are the most important votes in this election being cast, the ones that are kind of determining uh, who's actually going to be the winner, it was those swing states where these guys were actively involved. And I, I think that does count for a lot. You know, it's funny, Michael, I was thinking back on how much credit do we give uh, celebrities for their endorsements, right? And I feel like 
everybody has access to celebrity opinions now far more than ever. And I feel like maybe a celebrity endorsement by itself has, has never been more worthless. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, yep. like this random rapper or this random, uh, you know, athlete says this and everybody's like, okay, they see it on Instagram. They just kind of keep moving. Right. It's, it's not nearly, uh, the kind of cachet that maybe it was a long time ago. And I think what's important for, the athletes to realize is, I mean, they did put in daily work over the course of multiple months, you know, hammering home the vote message uh, in the bubble, wearing the t-shirts, just getting after it. And I think that that's how you change people's mind. That's how you get people involved is you just sort of, you know, do it in a way that can't be overlooked and forgotten. And it's funny because randomly I watched this uh, documentary about Taylor Swift like a year ago and she, and like, I happen to like her music. So this is like, you know, somewhat relevant here, but she had been very reluctant to be politically active for like mm-hmm. her entire career. And then she came out with her endorsement uh, a few years ago. And I think that she thought her endorsement was going to like single-handedly change Tennessee. And then after it was done, it like really had no impact. And I mean, I'm sure there was some young voters who registered, but I-, I think that she thought, okay, if I speak, then all of a sudden everything's going to change. And she seemed really hurt and really distressed and like confused by the fact that like things didn't go her way because you know she had finally put herself out there and I think it's just a reminder even when you're a celebrity like that's not how the political process works that's not how people make up their mind uh they're going to need you know more than just one urging or more than just one statement no matter how famous you are no matter uh how devoted your followers are and clearly she has the most devoted followers of almost any celebrity right now and so she doubled back and, and got herself involved in a lot of, uh, you know, voter initiatives as well this time around. So uh, I do think there's a little bit of an awakening here, um, you know, even among people who are living so comfortably that the results of the election, you know, may not personally impact their lives. I, I think that they're calibrating their approach on these things in, in positive and productive ways. And I think that we're already seeing so quickly the stories swing forward to, okay, who's going to win the Senate in Georgia, right? These, these runoff elections. And it's just kind of a reminder that like, okay, everybody have that celebration, have that victory lab, um, you know, on Saturday, if, if you're feeling good about the election results, but you know, it's, it's right back to work. uh, If you want to see, you know, your particular policies or your agenda, you know, be put into action, like it doesn't stop. This is just a a nonstop business uh, politics is. So I think um, the players will need to heed that message too, right? I mean, you you don't want to, uh, you know, take, take this win on Saturday and go on vacation for four months. I think that would be a, a mistake. Did you have a favorite reaction from any of the players that you saw? Ooh, what a question. Um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of the memes. My favorite meme actually was the one I saw scrolling through Instagram of, uh, uh, Joe Biden's face on Damian Lillard as he was waving at the Oklahoma City Thunder bench when he hit that step back <laughs> over Paul George. That's just like so, so money. Um, and it literally like uh, it, it synthesized just how I was feeling about everything. Like, goodbye. See you later, Don. Um, but I also liked I liked uh, Draymond Green's tweet. Um, to LeBron about how, hey, now you can go to the White House, which is also pretty stark and and hilarious. Just like, yeah, this is... NBA teams were not able to really visit the White House the last four years because of the conflict with the uh, leader of the free world. So um, it just kind of really clarified a, a, a leap back to 
normal times, which is good. I, I like normal right now. I want normal. <laughs> um, I think everybody does. So that one really kind of hit home as well. That was my favorite by far. You know, I take all the celebration stuff way too seriously. I mean, remember how upset I was that Bill Russell wasn't going to be there to, to present the finals MVP trophy <laughs> yeah. in the bubble, right? Um, I, to me, it might sound corny, but I think the White House visit thing is awesome. Like, if I won a title, I would absolutely want to go to the White House, and I could understand why, given the tension between these NBA teams and the White House and, and President Trump over these last couple of years, they would decide not to go or they would be disinvited by the president. I understand, you know, tensions and uh, you know, th- that relationship was just fractured, kind of beyond repair, uh, you know, for those three or four years. Um, at the same time, like, yeah, I would badly want to go it just seems like such a fun thing to do you get to kind of poke around you know what what part of the building are they going to show us who do we get to meet I mean all that stuff would just be so fun and to know that like two Warriors teams and the Raptors team didn't get to go I just feel bad for them it's just like they they lost out on a life experience that they can't get back right and so this idea that they're going to be able to normalize relations right between the US uh, the the US government and the NBA that that sounds pretty good to me and LeBron and, and the Lakers I'm sure will be excited to go uh, after the inauguration day and I think that's a, a good thing that is getting back to normal my other my other favorite reaction though came from uh, Steve Kerr and I know that you had told us a little bit a few months ago about the work Stacey Abrams had done uh, organizing down in Georgia. I think you read her book at one point, Michael. We might have had mm-hmm. that during the uh, the pod book segment, uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And she wound up registering 800,000 voters in Georgia, which is just an astronomical number. I mean, for anybody, I, I can't believe she did that. But Steve Kerr tweeted, Rather than crying fraud, Stacey Abrams embarked on an incredible journey to ensure election integrity and register new voters. And this is after she lost uh, her race for governor in Georgia in 2018. He went on to say, she didn't use hate or anger to inspire people. She used hope. What an incredible example of leadership. She inspired Americans to not only take part in our democracy, but to trust it. I think that's a really important message. Look, if if Steve Kerr and Coach Popovich are going to be banging on Trump for his leadership style and divisive rhetoric for years and years and years, that also winds up kind of casting a negative tone towards the whole thing, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of firing back in a sense, mm-hmm. but it still winds up being this kind of a, a toxic and negative back and forth. And I understand why they felt the need to vent. I'm, I'm not taking that away from them. But I think it's equally, if not more important, to spin it back and show positive examples when they do exist. And I think Steve Kerr has a point here, doesn't he? He for sure does. I mean, I saw that tweet and, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Stacey Abrams. And is this like the greatest moral victory of all time? Like her losing that governor's race in 2018 uh, to Brian Kemp. Um, because of voter suppression tactics and then going out and she would not have been able to be so um, aggressive in fighting voter suppression had she won that election. And who knows where we would be today in states like Georgia and other places around the country without her efforts. So like, is that just like the greatest, like this loss was actually a W in the history of politics? Or like, I, I was trying to think of like a basketball um, comparison, but I, I struck out on that one and I don't want to put you on the spot. But yeah, no, it was like, it's it's really great to see. And I, I uh, obviously agree with everything that Steve Kerr 
was well, it's sort of like when the Warriors lost the 2016 finals and they got KD. That's perfect. Yes, that <laughs> is got, perfect. <laughs> they got Boom. KD in free agency and won the next two back to back. I think that's what you were going for there, that's Michael. That's why. Uh, that's why we're podcast partners. That, that's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I know Stockton to Malone. As long as I'm Stockton, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, let's uh, shift gears here. I think that's enough political talk, guys. We didn't mean to dive too deeply into that. It's just an unavoidable topic at this point, and I do think the NBA has every right to feel like they made a difference here. Was it the difference? Uh, obviously, like Michael's saying, okay, that'd be a little bit uh, maybe overstating it or uh, you know, hard to parse, but certainly they played a role and they were right to uh, you know, have their moment if they were feeling good over the weekend. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. All right, the other news we had from late last week, on Friday, the NBA and the Players Union uh, reached agreement on the schedule and the timeline uh, that we had discussed. So 72 games starts December 22nd, camps open December 1st. So the next three weeks, Michael, are going to be wild. We're getting the draft, we're getting free agency, we're getting right into it. I'm starting to get my mind right. Uh, I'm feeling better about it than I was a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, I've, I've slowly acclimated to what this season's going to look like. Uh, still a little bit dubious about the, you know, how it's going to all play out and, and what it's going to look like and are they going to be able to keep the players safe. But the two sides, uh, they set the dates. They've got step one accomplished. Now, the next steps will be to reach agreements on the salary cap, luxury tax line, the finances for um, you know the breakdowns, how they're going to uh, kind of withdraw portions of the players' paychecks to cover the projected revenue losses. And then, of course, they do need to craft the health and safety protocols, just like they did for the bubble, although obviously they're going to be much different here because they're going to be living, working, and operating, playing uh, in real life as opposed to uh, you know a Disney World fantasy land. So here's my fun question for you on this, Michael, because we're getting basketball back. And there's been a few teams, eight teams to be precise, that we have not seen since March. And they're going to be taking a training camp on December 1. We're going to have to start thinking about them pretty, pretty soon because of the draft and free agency. And then, you know, not too long after that, they're going to be on the court playing their first games in more than nine months. Crazy to think about that layoff. Of those eight teams that haven't played since March, who are you most excited to see? 
What a question. Um, the number one team I want to see is the Golden State Warriors, and I think we covered that quite a bit in our last episode. And obviously they were not in the bubble because of, you know, they, they were just terrible last season. They had a bunch of injuries to key players, etc. Like, I missed watching Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green play basketball, and I'm really excited to see just what the next iteration of this dynasty looks like and if they well, can win another championship. Stop right there. We got a question okay. from Drew. He asked... A national pundit recently proclaimed Golden State to be the biggest threat to a Lakers repeat. That seems a little bit far-fetched considering Klay Thompson's return from injury, Steph Curry's infrequent appearances last season, and the Warriors' need for a third top-shelf component. Sorry, but Draymond and Wiggins are more T-Rex arms-length talents. So he's basically saying that they need a third piece. Uh, and then he goes, for all the jokes made at their expense in their front court uncertainty, the Clippers still appear best suited to upend LeBron, AD, and company. Who do you guys see as the Lakers' toughest competition for this season? So I know you're really excited about this Steph Curry comeback show. Are you ready mm-hmm. to vault them up into that top-tier contender conversation, or are you more in the Drew wait-and-see category, or maybe they can get there if they get another player you know, wheeling and dealing around the draft? I mean, how high are you when you say you're high on the Warriors? I mean, I'm high on Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. Uh, I'm, you know, not so high on some of the other pieces. I think they're a little top-heavy. They're obviously, you know, they don't have some of those core vets that we saw and became familiar with, like Sean Livingston and Andre Iguodala, et cetera, that were a part of the those championship teams from a few years ago. But, I mean, the way I look at the Warriors is they have... Uh, a lot of opportunity um, at the draft and in free agency when trades, a lot of trades are potentially going to be made uh, to bolster their team, to add some depth, to maybe move that second pick, maybe move that 2021 Minnesota Timberwolves pick or dangle it out there, see what talent you can get. Um, uh, I think, you know, signing a big is is uh, critical here. And, you know, they've already been linked to Dwight Howard. They could maybe get JaVale McGee back at some point. Um, or just another defensive big because you really need to build your team with uh, with Anthony Davis in mind if you are a Western Conference contender, I think. I think he proved that and he deserves that respect going forward. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I do, I think they're a contender. Yes. Uh, and I want to just like caveat it with, I want to see some of the moves that they make, um, uh, in free agency in that period and kind of what their roster looks like on opening night um, before I get too pumped up. But but yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm high on the other pieces. I really am. And I'm not going to doubt the, the Splash Brothers. Yeah, look, I think I'm kind of with Drew on wanting to see a little bit more. But if you guarantee Ooh. me, if you guarantee me great health for the big three and they do find a way to get an extra big, which is and they have a lot of paths to get a big, then you can maybe start getting me thinking that they're a top-tier contender. I guess my biggest concern is what does Draymond look like because he's so important to what they do, and he was pretty rough last season. So there's kind of no excuse mode here for Draymond coming back in. And -hmm. then obviously I want to make sure that Steph can play uh, as many games as possible. I think the shortened season actually plays to Steph's benefit. You know, it, playing 60 out of 72 games is just so much better than playing 60 out of 82 games, right? From a, a schedule standing uh, standpoint and just you know, like a seeding standpoint in the Western Conference. So you figure he's going to miss some time because he always has for the last three or four seasons. And I'm sure they'll be real careful about playing him on back-to-backs and all that kind of stuff. But mm. 
I think having fewer games out there plays to his benefit because they were so bad without him last year. And I think even this year, um, you know, without having that Kevin Durant presence from a few years ago, they're going to be in trouble, uh, you know, anytime he's off the court. So, uh, you know, I've got reasons for optimism, but I would say it's more cautious optimism rather than immediately throwing them up into the top tier, you know, having them do this big V bounce back from like contender to the worst team in the West Mm -hmm. back to contender. Um, I'm still holding out uh, a little bit of suspicion that that's how it's going to play out. You know, this was a pretty obvious answer, Michael, I got to say, of these, you know, bottom eight teams. But I was trying to make counter arguments to be the guy who's like, well, actually... And I mean, when you're looking at the Bulls, Knicks, Pistons, Hawks, Cavs, that's a pretty rough rundown. I mean, I guess of all of them, you're probably more excited about the Hawks than anything just because they were so young last year. They have a lot yeah. of guys, you know, taking steps forward. Maybe they could, you know, bust out a little bit. It's it's possible. Um, and then with the Timberwolves, you know, it's, it's really tricky to know what's going to happen there. We want to see what they do with the draft. But they also have this situation where Carl Anthony Towns is coming off of a major tragedy, right? They they traded a whole bunch of their roster um, at the deadline. They are super duper young, and they could be the worst team in the West, you know. And that could be really depressing because they've been trying, like you know, as hard as possible to kind of build some upward momentum and and to put a core together. So um, I think by default you have to pick the Warriors here. I would probably have the Hawks as my number two answer. But let's flip this around and be a little bit more devious and, and evil, Michael. Of the eight teams that I mentioned that haven't played since March, who's the team you want to just stay on hiatus, to not even come back? Is there a team that you're like, oh, God, we've got to talk about these guys again? I mean, you just listed all the teams that are on my list here. Um, the Knicks. Like, well, I, don't. I listed all eight teams that weren't I know uh, you did. playing. Yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah, I guess maybe like r- right before I get into that, because it's really a depressing conversation turn, um, like real quick about Atlanta and Minnesota. I'm actually excited for both of those teams um, quite a big, great deal, um, particularly Atlanta. Like if you recall 16 million years ago, right before the start of the 2019-20 season, like the Atlanta Hawks were supposed to make the playoffs. Like they were supposed to at least punch up to try to get to the eighth seed or the seventh seed. And then John Collins tests positive and has a 25-game suspension and their season just goes in the tank. Like I think uh, you add Clint Capella, another year of Trey Young just getting better in all facets of his game, hopefully, particularly, you know, what he can muster on the defensive end. And Collins from the start, and Cam Reddish in year two, and DeAndre Hunter in year two, and then what they do with the sixth pick. I just, I'm fascinated by Atlanta. And I, I'm Kevin Herter, who I also really like. Um, just a lot of names, a lot of interesting names, a lot of young talent. I love the Hawks. I'm a big Hawks person. Um, I'm a big Trey Young person. And so they're really exciting to me um, from all those different angles. So I just wanted to say that before we just dive into this dark, dark area. No, I'm with you. I I think from that group, they've got the most upside potential. Um, You know, you could also talk me into a team like maybe Chicago all of a sudden looks way more professional Mm -hmm. and together because of the coaching change like that. There's very possibly a boiling bump, right? We could be seeing like... (laughs) You know, I don't know, eight more wins just based off of the coaching change. It's not impossible. Am I really excited to see that group unless they get a point guard? The answer is no. You know, I need to see a real real point guard there before I really start to froth. 
What are the teams that you don't want to see, though, Michael? Stop ducking. Just go ahead okay. and lay it out. Be the rude guy. You know, come on. Let, put it on me. I know there's a team out there that you're thinking like, God, they should have just stayed away. No, I mean, there's probably three uh, off the top that just really separate themselves. Um, the Knicks, I just have no interest. I don't really care what trades they make and the trades that they're probably going to make are, um, you know, they're, they're most likely going to take on bad contracts or whatever. They, that's been just reported on kind of their mentality as an organization to try to squeeze assets out of other teams. Let me stop you uh, right there. If you sure. are a Knicks marketing executive, all right, we're going to play like a, a mental hypothetical game. What is your pitch to the fan base this year? Like, how are you? Because, I mean, you don't have Madison Square Garden and, like, come to Midtown Manhattan and watch a basketball game. LeBron's going to be here playing against us, right? Like, that's out. So what is your pitch to fans this year? Like, we're not going to throw you out because you can't heckle the owner? Like, what is your what is your big pitch to the fans? Like, R.J. Barrett, youth and improvement? Is that what you're I sort mean, of starting it around? I mean, where does it even begin? Ben, this question was not in the outline, and so oh, I would have needed prepared. I would have needed sixteen days to come up with a good answer for you here, at least. Um, I I mean, what, what what do you? I can't even get in that mindset. Um, yeah, R.J. Barrett is alive and kicking, and will probably take forty five shots a game. Uh, get ready for. Tom Thibodeau's, uh, you know, antiquated approach to basketball on the defensive end, um, driving all the young players into dirt. Uh, get ready for Mitchell Robinson, um, probably getting dangled in trade talks all season long and moved before we have to pay him big money. Uh, I, I, I don't. I, <laughs> I could go on. It's really dark. And um, well, this come is watch, why yeah, they have watch. to trade, though. This is why yeah. they have to make a trade. <laughs> This yeah. is why they're going to go after somebody like a Chris Paul or like some kind of a contract like that, right? Because they don't have a lot to sell. And you're a new front office with a new coach. You can't just say, oh, yeah, we have this 20-year-old kid who really wasn't good at all as a rookie. Now we're going to just roll him back out there and like try to keep people happy. That's not going to be good enough. I, I think maybe my next joke was going to be a, about Julius Randle for the record. but Oh, bring it on. Uh, we, um, always, we always no, stand I mean, a Julius Randle just, joke around here. I mean, lots no, of double-doubles. Like, he's the least aesthetically pleasing player in the entire league for me, so uh, that's probably reason number one or two why I don't enjoy watching the Knicks and didn't really watch a lot of their games last season. Um, yeah, but... Yeah, lots of du- double-doubles, not very many Ws. All right. Um, yeah. I think that they're pretty clearly the number one team that's got a lot Gross. to yeah. just kind of turn people off or win people back over. So I hope that they look in the mirror on that and come out with a good free agency plan or come out with a good trade plan to kind of shake things up and just be different. You have to be different. You can't run this group back in the same way. It's just, it would be a, a terrible disaster. What about the Cavs, though? I mean, I could kind of see it both ways. Like, the Cavs are pretty brutal too, but at the same time, at least they have a few younger players who have started to turn corners slightly, right? And you don't know if they mm. all fit together. You don't know if they mm-hmm. make sense long-term, but you just need one of them to hit, maybe. That's the argument, right? Um, where would you put the Cavs on this matrix? Uh, Cavs were number two. I took oh. a shot at... at- Cleveland uh, near the end of our last episode and I stand by it um, I'm yeah no I'm not excited at all I I'm potential I keep forgetting who their coach is too which is just not a great sign if you're an NBA organization but like um, you know I'm, I'm I think I'm maybe a little higher on 
uh, Darius Garland than most. You know, I just like that player type in today's league, who uh, someone who can theoretically, um, you know, hit a 30-footer, uh, has a nice floater game, maybe can be a franchise point guard at some point. But then you also have Colin Sexton, who really loves to be... I feel like they're the, like the poor man's Dame Lillard and the poor man's Russell Westbrook together. Um, and that's just not a combination for success at all. So I, I, I anticipate them breaking those two up at some point. You have the Andre Drummond situation, which is just so mind-boggling to me. I don't really get it at all. Um they have the fifth pick in this year's draft, so we'll see who they take with that. And uh, I, I mean, if I'm the Cleveland Cavaliers marketing exec to kind of replay that exercise over with that team, um, I'm just pumped about that pick. And whoever we take with that pick is who's going to be on the cover of all the the uh, uh, season ticket merchandise and advertising. Um, so... Yeah, Cleveland is really in a bad place right now, and I don't really know when they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I might have gone for like a young gunners type approach on the media guide, right? Just put like everybody who's (laughs) under the age of 21 all in like a little group photo. And, you know, you go with the rise together, rise with us, uprising, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of uh, tagline. You know, it's it's been used a few times in NBA history, but I would probably uh, go back to that well if I were them. I wouldn't be putting Andre Drummond on the media guide. I could promise you that. Now, no, I wouldn't either. Uh, Michael, who's your third? You mentioned you had three that you don't want to watch. Uh, the Pistons. Really? Um, the Pistons, yeah. I'm I'm not really excited to watch them play basketball. Well, I bad think... news, Michael, bad news, <laughs> because we got a very, very nice email mm-hmm. from my guy, Ali, in Detroit. He writes, huge fan of the podcast, been listening to you guys for over two years. There is one team who doesn't get enough love from you. It's the Detroit Pistons. Now, look, I understand this team has done almost nothing of significance over the past decade, but I feel like there is much to talk about regarding the future. We finally replaced our GM and hired Troy Weaver over the summer uh, from Oklahoma City, and he was the one who pushed them to draft Russell Westbrook and was instrumental in drafting and developing James Harden and Serge Ibaka. We also finally salary-dumped Reggie Jackson, traded Andre Drummond for expiring contracts and a pick, and Blake's contract is getting closer to expiring. We can either let him sign with someone else or keep his veteran presence for a much lower salary, which never hurts. Not to mention, Dwayne Casey is still coach. We also have the seventh pick in the draft looking to trade up. Based on the opening cap space and much improved front office, where do you guys see this franchise going in the 2020s? So he's a little bit early on the whole Blake's contract thing, um, but the rest of it, he paints out a pretty rosy picture, at least from a philosophical standpoint. Is your concern it's not going to translate onto the court this coming year? Well, like, if I'm the GM of the Detroit Pistons, this is the perfect opportunity for me to head in the opposite direction. Like, I'm blowing this up as quickly as possible. I'm getting rid of um, Derek Rose, who probably should have been traded uh, at last. I mean, we were talking about Derek Rose trade, or at least I no, was. No, I was no, 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 no. That was you. You That was yeah. your hobby horse. For like two and yes, a half straight was. months, you were trying to get <laughs> Derek was. Rose traded, and, and you came up short, and now you're back at it in, in uh, November 2020? Yeah. I won't. I won't let it die. But um, and for the record, I didn't come up short. They came up short. They should have moved him. I still stand by that. But I, you know, if I'm Detroit, like yeah, I'm blowing it up. I'm trying to move on from Blake Griffin as soon as I can. I'm moving on from Derrick Rose. Um, I think again, like the seventh pick in this year's draft is critical for me. 
and Sekou Dumbuya's de- development. I mean, he turns 20 uh, right around opening night. That's an intriguing uh, potential building block for you. And you have to really worry about uh, Luke Kennard's next contract and how much you're going to pay him. Are you going to move on from him? Um, that's another one. Are you going to sign and trade him? I think, like, if I'm Detroit, I'm not really, you know, uh, uh, Ali writes in his email about, you know, um, cap space going forward. And I think one of the big mistakes that Detroit made last time around when they had cap space with Stan Van Gundy was overpaying all these uh, role players who would otherwise not go to Detroit. Um, and maybe you should just, like, use that cap space intelligently and become a dumping ground. Um, which I hope that they do, and then be bad. And you have this year's pick, number seven overall. You'll have you have all your first round picks going forward. Um, maybe you can add some other assets with you know in the Blake Griffin trade, in the Derrick Rose trade, in any other transactions down the line. So I'm I mean like it, this is just a time for this organization to really take a step back and be like, where are we in the Eastern Conference? We are nowhere near. Uh, 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 winning a playoff series, let alone making the playoffs. So maybe even with Dwayne Casey, who's not going to be on board with this and not be happy about it, I think we really need to blow this thing up and start from scratch. Uh, so that does not translate in my eyes to a appealing uh, product for the 2021 season if I'm just like watching on League Pass every night. You know, it's great. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I also kind of agree with a lot of what Ali said. Um, I think that I have probably made more the Detroit Pistons are just spinning their wheels like hacky uh, automotive references over the last 10 years than just about anyone because they have been just stuck for a really, really long time, right? And I think that you're right to point to Stan Van Gundy's spending. I mean, that was a spending spree with long-term implications, not only the length of the contracts that he signed, but the subsequent deals that he felt like he had to go out and pursue because they were sort of bought into this kind of win-now mode, and it just kind of kept putting them further and further away from an ideal spot. And, you know, the Blake Griffin contract, he's on the books for this coming year, and then he's got a player option for the following year at a huge number, You know, it's possible that he just picks that up, you know, given where the NBA's uh, finances are going. So he is, I would say, more tradable than he's been over these last couple of years, but still not the easiest piece to unload and probably not a, a huge return coming back if you did try to trade him. You know, I think that Ali makes some good points, though, here in terms of their direction. Like if you're saying, who would you rather have calling the shots with cap space, Troy Weaver or Stan Van Gundy? I mean, I think we could agree Troy Troy Weaver right uh just from even though he's an unproven executive like we've seen what happens when Stan Van Gundy's in charge this seems like an upgrade if you look at Dwayne Casey compared to a lot of the coaches they've had over the last 10 years and they've been through a lot of different coaches you'd rather have Dwayne Casey especially if you're going through a tough kind of retooling or rebuilding cycle where you've got to keep players motivated you've got to keep them focused and maybe you even have to balance a superstar, uh, you know, in Blake Griffin and trying to keep him happy and motivated. Dwayne Casey sounds like a pretty good coach for that job. Is he going to carry them to the playoffs by himself? Probably not. But I think he's got a great personality, optimistic vision, good communication skills uh, to, you know, be a, a real asset in that spot. I think, Ali, the big problem you've got, as Michael laid out, not nearly enough talent on hand right now. The draft pick is going to be helpful this year, but uh, not going to be a major game changer just based on where you're picking in terms of your short-term, uh, you know, your, your short-term spot. 
And so I kind of side with Michael on this one. It might be time to do a hardcore tank this year. You don't have to worry about alienating fans. You don't have to try to sell tickets to the building. I think if you are a team like Detroit, kind of stuck in this in-between spot, I would actually put San Antonio you know, kind of in a similar spot and a few other teams where you know, they, they don't exactly know whether they're coming or going, but it seems like the writing's on the wall and the momentum's going the wrong way. I think now is an excellent time to tear it down and just, uh, you know, bite the bullet this season and then try to, you know, come out the following year uh, with, you know, a little bit more talent on hand. I think that's how I would approach it. And Ben, this is kind of an obvious point, but it's one I feel that's worth making. If you are uh, San Antonio or Detroit or Cleveland or whichever team, um, don't you feel like like this season is the year to do it, to, to scale yes. back, to not care about attendance because it doesn't matter. Like the, the, the uh, financial um, cost of, of going in the opposite direction and turning off your, your fan base. I mean, Oklahoma City, I'll throw them in here, um, is really, it's different this year. And so there's, there's no optics issue of, of having your arena be uh, empty every night if you're Charlotte or you're Detroit or you're whoever. So I just think like, if I'm one of these organizations, I'm just like, whatever. I, no, like, this, this is the year is the, for me to be bad. This is the biggest hall pass for executives that we have ever seen, right? I mean, if you've ever even thought in the back of your mind, I just want to run my team into the ground for a year and get a top three pick, this is the time to do it, especially because next year's draft is supposed to be really, really impressive towards the top. So there's a lot of incentive there. We'll see how hard these teams try to uh, to camouflage their um, their approach. Maybe some will just go straight for it. It's kind of amazing that Oklahoma City hasn't hired a coach yet. Um, that could be a red flag, Michael. <laughs> it could be a red flag, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that team is going to win, like, what, like 13 games next season, 10 games. Like, I it just that, that's going to probably be the one of the worst teams in the league, if not the worst team in the league. While we're on this subject, I do want to read a quick email from JC in France, and he's talking about the Spurs. He says, this seems like a transition period that they haven't f- had to face for a long time. What's the best route for them? Is Greg Popovich in for the long term? Who should be the next head coach? Do they have assets in the upcoming draft they can count on? Or will they trade some of their core players? What's the rebuild going to look like? And so and we were just discussing, you know, what's the best move for the Spurs? I mean, I think that they're right in this same group, Michael, because mm-hmm. they don't have the pressure of the very demanding fan base being in the building. And that is a very demanding, high expectations fan base. They don't have the pressure of the playoff streak because the playoff streak got snapped last year. We haven't heard anything definitive about Coach Popovich, but there's so little time here that we we're acting under the assumption that he's going to be back. But when you look at the veterans that they do have as possible trade chips, whether it's Aldridge, DeRozan, or Rudy Gay, all of those guys have been mentioned in trade rumors already. And when we look back at how they played in the bubble, they were actually more entertaining and more fun without Aldridge um, because he didn't show up due to injury. So you know you could be looking at potentially you know at least from an entertainment value standpoint some addition by subtraction if you move a, f- a few of those veterans and just play the younger guys. Is this a team that should be? I mean, not tanking like intentionally trying to lose games, but having a fire sale of its veteran pieces so it can just go younger and and just see where it stands. You know, to start the 2021 2022 season. That's how I would do it personally. I would just get rid of all three of those guys. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I mean, I'm I'm just copying and pasting my strategy for Detroit um, and applying it here with San Antonio. Like, 
you know, they have some interesting young pieces. DeJounte Murray, who they just signed to an extension that's pretty team-friendly, I think, um, if you like DeJounte Murray. Um, Derek White, still under uh, team control in his rookie-scale deal. Lonnie Walker, Keldon Johnson, just intriguing, I guess, high-upside prospects. They have all their own picks, including the 11th pick in this year's draft. And we haven't really had an opportunity to see San Antonio pick high in a draft in a really long time. And they've had a lot of success picking low in the draft so that could be a really good player um but yeah i 100 percent agree with you like i'd be looking to move lamarcus i i said lamarcus was my guy who i thought needed to be moved and i want to see moved to a contender lamarcus de rosen is really going to be really tricky to trade um assuming that he opts into his his current contract yeah to me he's uh, an eastern conference player if you can just trade him to a team in the eastern conference he's going to look better he's going to be happier he's going to have more regular season success mm-hmm. it's going to be a win for everybody all around and that probably sounds a little bit disrespectful but i think that's you know that's true and so if there's teams out there who are trying to make a little playoff push or get themselves into that conversation they should have yeah. some interest right yeah, I mean that's why he's been tied to the Orlando Magic for so long. I mean, I would I would, you know, think that a team like the Charlotte Hornets or a team like honestly even the Atlanta Hawks would be really interesting to get a player like him for a year and just see what happens. Um just a it team would, that wants it, to make the playoffs. It would be better for all parties if he was in a spot like that, you know. I mean, the the upside there is not great. The long term, you're kind of questioning, well, you know, is this guy really going to be an impact player in the playoffs? Like is it even worth kind of pursuing him? But he's wasting time, and you know he's wasting his own time. San Antonio is wasting his time if he stays there. I think it makes a lot of sense to, to make that kind of a trade. Yeah, 100%. Um, and yeah, so I mean, just going back to the question, like if I'm San Antonio, I'm trying to, you know, I'm not using my cap space to sign free agents, which is really frustrating for the fan base there. But, I mean, they had 20 years of success. Like, this is time now for you to go through the cycle that everybody else goes through, you know, every four or five years um, where you are the dumping ground. You are the team that is taking on the bad contracts and trades. You are the team that is really trying to hoard assets and you're being more aggressive in the trade market than you have been over the past 20 plus years. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, this is just, it, it, it comes for everybody. The end comes for everyone. This is clearly the end of what was one of the most impressive dynastic runs in professional, North American professional sports history. So shout out to the Spurs, but it, there's going to be some pain in the near future. There is. And I hope they look in the mirror and just accept that, right? Don't try to drag this out again. Like we, we've seen how it's gone the last couple of years. It hasn't been very fun. It's been just kind of demoralizing for people who really enjoy watching the Spurs at their best. It's kind of like, you know, uh, a shell of who they used to be. And, you know, try to reimagine a new version of the Spurs for the 2020s. That's my challenge to Mm -hmm. you guys in the front office, Uh, as corny as that sounds. Michael, we're going to close up this podcast. I'm throwing you on the hot seat. Are you prepared? Of course. Okay, here's the plan. You're going to get to be GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you're going to get to be GM of the Golden State Warriors, you know. So you're going to have the number one pick for Minnesota, the number two pick for Golden State. I need to know your plan for what you do in this situation coming up here in the draft, right? So you've got a couple options if you're Minnesota. You could just use the number one pick um, on your favorite prospect. You could trade down potentially um, to try to pick up another asset, you know, the old uh, Markel Fultz style Danny Ainge move, right? Uh, or you could trade it for veteran pieces or some other type of talent, future picks, whatever it might be. 
to uh, bolster uh, your your core piece. And so I want to know, what are you thinking right now if you're Minnesota's front office about what your biggest needs are? Which of those strategies do you prefer? And kind of who are you targeting in this draft if you're sitting on top of it? Well, I mean, I, you know, come into an exercise like this <laughs> having uh, not scouted any of the players coming into the draft. So that's really putting me behind the eight ball from the jump. But if I, if I were, if I was Minnesota, um, you know, I'm personally intrigued most by James Weissman. And I'm intrigued by having a big that athletic just from watching like just highlight clips of him and workout clips and stuff like that. I've just been totally sucked into the hype train with him. And I know that I already have Carl Anthony Towns, but if I can just kind of reshape my franchise's identity around having this monstrous front line, um, a pick and roll, like hardcore role man who's super athletic in Weissman running pick and rolls with D'Angelo Russell, um, Carl Towns being able to spot up and shoot over 40% from the three-point line. I think my offense can be really good. And then I think we're like at the point now with Carl Towns where I don't think he can be the anchor of a top, you know, uh, elite top seven, top eight defense. So hopefully what the, the idea here is that Weissman is kind of able to develop into that type of player uh, who can anchor my defense because defense is easily the most important part of where I need to improve as an organization. Um, so that's probably what I'm going to do if I if I take that first pick. I just think that Weissman, not, it's not the most conventional move to kind of stack up your front court right now in today's league, but I think that it's like... It just seems necessary given, um, and if you believe that he's the best player, it just seems necessary to take him and then just kind of like let the chips fall where they may because... This is a gutsy approach because I think number one, Carl Anthony Towns is looking at you like, wait a minute, what? And then I think also Weissman, (laughs) there's been some uh, reporting that Weissman maybe doesn't want to land in Minnesota. I would assume... That could be because of Towns' presence. (laughs) I could assume that's because of maybe of the cold weather market. So your strategy is just you're going straight through it. You're driving the car right into the brick wall. You don't care. Everybody has to get on board with the Michael Pino way. Exactly. No, but also like, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that this could not work out and there could be shades of like the early process Sixers with Nerlens Noel and Jaleel Okafor and Joel Embiid. But like... If I was uh, making decisions for Minnesota and I saw that there was really an, uh, uh, a duplication of a skill set and these two guys could not play together and coexist, like you got to move on uh, and rip the Band-Aid off as quickly as you can and move one of them, meaning Carl or, or Weissman, while their value is extremely high and while they're still productive players um, – and just yeah, move on. Well, from here's it, a tricky. Like, here's a tricky part. Are sure. we sure that Carl's going to be there for the next ten years? Right. I mean, I think part of what you're thinking has to be is like, do I need a hedge against the yep. possibility that sometime down the road, Carl Anthony Towns wants out or wants to go somewhere else or whatever it might be? So I think that's got to factor into your thinking. I also mm-hmm. think this organization knows what happens if some guy signals he doesn't want to come there and you go and draft Johnny Flynn over Steph Curry, right? That's mm. that's not great, you know? That yeah. that winds up biting you. So, so there is an argument there to say, look, even if the guy is not that, you know, all in invested in you as a destination, take your shot, try to sell him on it and hope that the talent winds up carrying the day and you're all good. So I understand where you're coming from. 
Here's a, an idea from Callum. He emailed in, my trade proposal is Bradley Beal for the number one pick. Minnesota would have to throw in a contract to make the salaries match, but I don't understand why I haven't seen this in trade rumors. The Wizards would be moving on from the basement of the NBA and focus on rebuilding for the future. Meanwhile, the Timberwolves would get a win-now player in Beal who fits relatively well with the timeline of Carl uh, Anthony Towns and D'Angelo, and he's only three years older than the two. That's incredible that uh, Beal's only three years older than those guys. Um, he goes on to say, additionally, They'd be taking a player at number one. Doesn't really make sense for the Timberwolves as there has been rumors of Carl uh, Anthony Towns not being happy with the team. So basically he's arguing you don't want to get too young here if Towns is at this like kind of critical juncture. You want to get him as much help as you possibly can so that he has a chance to win now. What do you are you are you moved by this idea? And do you think Washington would have interest in this? I feel like they view Bradley Beal as a, a you know a a full-fledged franchise player, their guy. They're trying to win this season with John Wall coming back. They don't want to necessarily go young during John Wall's comeback tour. I think they're still trying to sell themselves on that idea. Um, I, I don't know if they would want to trade Beal for the the number one pick in a draft where there's no clear consensus about who's mm-hmm. like a franchise talent. What do you think? I mean, I think both teams say no to this, but I actually think that Minnesota is the first one to hang up the phone. Like, theoretically, you're adding this all NBA talent, this guy who just averaged 30 a night, um, really great player in Brad Beal. But the fact of the matter is, like, economically, he's going to opt out of his contract um, next year. And so you're basically just trading for one season of Brad Beal is how I would look at it. If I was Minnesota, I, I do not see – like if I trade for Brad Beal, I do not see him resigning with the Minnesota Timberwolves and playing with D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns uh, during the section of his career where he's really trying to win basketball games at a high level. Um so you don't trade the number one pick and the seven or eight years of um, high-level uh, talent and value uh, from that asset for a guy who can leave after one season. I don't really even care who it is. Um, you just don't make that move if you're Minnesota. Yeah, in part because you're probably more nervous than the average team that there's going to be a flight risk there, right? Um, just because, you know, tough market, it's no real Minnesota. connection to that player. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that is a, a tough uh, tough spot to be in. Okay, so if we've got your plan for Minnesota, and it's pretty gutsy, uh, do you have a similarly gutsy plan for Golden State, Michael, or or what are you thinking? I mean, do you, if uh, Weissman's gone at number one, do you want to use that pick at number two and try to add a piece? Are you shopping it like crazy to get, um, you know, instant upgrade help for Steph Curry and uh, Clay Thompson? Are you trying to hedge it all against, you know, what's the future of the organization look like? In other words, are you trying to find a Kawhi Leonard so that you've got a a backup plan five years down the road when this current core is a little bit older and uh, maybe no longer operating at an all-NBA level? What are you thinking in this spot? Yeah, my strategy is find the next Kawhi Leonard. Mark me down. That's just written on the whiteboard in my office. Uh, (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's... That's uh, Exhibit A right there with my strategy and my mindset. Um, okay, you know, buddy, I, you're on the hot seat. Come on. <laughs> if I was, if I was Golden State, I mean, I'm a contender now, but I also am worried about the future for sure. You know, I have this new arena. I don't want to just be awful once Steph and Clay and Draymond kind of move on into a different stage of their career. So I'm, I'm cognizant of that. I also have this Minnesota Timberwolves pick next year that's unprotected in 2022. 
um, when the Timberwolves are probably still going to be a bad basketball team. So, I mean, if Wiseman is available, I just take Wiseman and I'm like pretty excited about it. And, you know, I can then use him in trade talks going forward, maybe attaching him to Wiggins just to see what's going on uh, before the trade deadline. Um, But uh, like he also is just like a really perfect fit with my team. Like we don't really have a center. It's like Kevon Looney is the guy right now who's probably starting on opening night for me at the five. I think if Weissman can come into his own as a rookie, that's huge. If he makes a leap in his second year when Clay and Steph are just older, that's great. And then in year three, if he's like, you know, looks like a burgeoning all-star, I'm a contender for a long time going forward still. So I like that pick and I like that fit for them. Um, you want everybody my, to pick Wiseman. This is your new strategy. This is great. I like, I, I, yeah, I'm all in on Wiseman. I don't really care. I, I, I just think like after watching, maybe it's just like my recency bias of watching Anthony Davis, and I don't, I'm not comparing the two, but I am saying that like I think size really matters going forward, and you just you need a big who can um, do things offensively. Uh, I think like he has a, a, an interesting pick and pop game. He's super athletic in the, in, in, in pick and roll action. No, it's no um, surprise. You know, a GQ analyst wants to be on trend, right? <laughs> Anthony Davis, the yeah. big is back. And you're now you're, now you're all interested and enamored with the young bigs. I, I can see it. Um, okay. So when you're looking forward though, is your thinking here on the Wiseman idea, with the knowledge that you've got Minnesota's t- uh, top three protected pick for the following year in your back pocket. So you could theoretically yeah. have both worlds, right? You could take Wiseman and you could still shop that future pick plus Wiggins's contract and go find something else. I mean, would you, would you be trying to do like that or would you be more patient? Uh, potentially, uh, potentially. I think, you know, one of the more intriguing possibilities just like broadly speaking is the idea of, trading back in this year's draft using the second pick, you know, um, getting still a lottery pick and then uh, an interesting player back with it. Uh, That could be a strategy. And I have two possible ideas. I think one of them is financially kind of a little prickly. I don't know if it's really possible for Golden State given their situation, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. The first is, uh, and you tell me what you think, Ben. Um, The first is I'm trading the second pick back to Phoenix for the 10th pick and Mikhail Bridges. Ooh. Do you think they do that? Um, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I think the draft analysts have talked this draft down so much. I'm actually, if I'm sitting on either one of these top two picks, I'm thinking, you know what? There's always good people, good players, long-term pieces at the very top of the draft. It's just a matter of identifying who these guys are, right? Even in the weakest possible draft, there's going to be somebody that you would really like to have for a long time. That's just how it is, right? So I'm going to try to be the market correction voice in the in the uh, boardroom who's saying, look, listen to all the people, you know, poo-poo this group. We don't have to find five players in this draft who are all awesome. We just have to find the one guy who's going to be really good. And so I'm going to trust my scouting eye. I'm going to go out and find that person. Now, have I personally devoted hundreds of hours to looking through the tape to to know who that person is? No, not particularly. But I trust that these executives had. So if you're giving me this trade proposal, I would say, you know what? I can do better at number two than that. So I'm going to try to go do better. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, the the 10th pick is... it's. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a reach there. But um, my next hypothetical is very similar. It's it's the same thing, trading back uh, the second pick to San Antonio for the 11th pick and DeJounte Murray. 
And that's the one that's kind of like, I don't even know if that would that would take a little bit of a... I mean, they have a trade exception, Golden State does, so maybe they could just fit DeJounte Murray in there. Um, but what do you think about that, just you know, philosophically speaking? If he was a better like passing playmaker as a setup guy for you know Steph and Clay, I would feel better about it. I think that's starting to get a little bit crowded there in the backcourt. And is he addressing your needs? And is he as clean of a fit as possible? I don't know uh, if he is. So I would probably pass there too. Um, but I like where you're going. Can I read you a fake trade from one of our listeners uh, on a similar yes. subject? Ben says, Kevin Love and the number five pick... <laughs> To Golden State for Andrew Wiggins and the number two pick. So, in other words, uh, you know, Cleveland's trying to move up here a few spots. He says this would, uh, you know, give Andrew Wiggins a return to the team that drafted him, and Kevin Love would finally get to the Warriors after years of rumors. Uh, the ages of the players traded fit better uh, on the new teams. In other words, Andrew Wiggins uh, is younger. Uh, and Cleveland's obviously going through a rebuilding moment. Kevin Love's a veteran and would kind of fit with Golden State's core from an age perspective. Um, Then uh, he goes on to say these two teams could get creative and add sign-in trades with guys like Marquise Chris or Tristan Thompson. So what do you think of his basic proposal here? Uh, Does Kevin Love help Golden State? Is he worth, uh, you know, trading down to, to grab a player like that? And would Cleveland believe that Andrew Wiggins is enough in a return for Kevin Love? Do you think Bob Myers, after watching what his team did to Kevin Love in the NBA Finals like 17 times, would be interested in sacrificing three pick slots to acquire this player? What, you mean when Kevin Love had the greatest stand in the modern defensive history to to (laughs) shut down Steph Curry and lock up a title for the Cavaliers in 2016? Is that what you're describing? Yep, yep, yep. Um I mean, this is this is an interesting one. I, I these these trades like basically never ever happen. And if I'm Golden State, I might actually think there's more value in Wiggins than Love, even if I think that Love is a better basketball player. I just think like Kevin Love as an idea is so much different from the Kevin Love that you might actually get. He just has not been healthy. He has had so many surgeries on important parts of the body. And as he gets older and older, like, is he going to be able to be on the floor in, you know, the conference finals and have this real significant impact? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, But at the same time, like if he is healthy, thinking about him, you know, running pick and pops with Steph, and and clay and um just being you know doing kevin love things on the boards etc like that's fun to think about um but i just think that it's not what you're probably going to get in reality and if that trade is like crossing my desk i'm just like i'm just taking james weissman (laughs) with the second pick is what i'm gonna do yeah here's my standard for golden state trading down um or even trading that future pick that we described next year's pick if you're going to trade it, you have to get a piece who matches up with Anthony Davis. doesn't have to be an all-star level guy. It has to be someone who directly helps your ability to guard him during a playoff series. That is your most important hole right now. And I also think, you know, they've on the wing, they're going to need some perimeter defenders too to deal with guys like, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard if it comes to that um, in the playoffs. Now, obviously, Clay is going to be helpful in those particular matchups. Draymond's got some versatility. You could use him in spots as well. But you need another piece kind of in that in that range to just fill out your wing group. I don't think Wiggins is that guy. So, Wiggins, baby. Yeah, come on, Pod. You can't even say that with a straight face, right? So um, 
that would be my standard. I'm not going to execute any trade, including a trade for Kevin Love or any other deal, if it doesn't address that particular need. Otherwise, I'm just going to use the draft pick and, and trust my scouts that we're going to get an awesome player. That's how I would approach this draft if I was Golden State. If I was Minnesota, um, your case for Weissman is pretty strong. I could also see a, a pretty good case for Anthony Edwards just from a, a fit perspective. We know how much they love mm-hmm. D'Angelo Russell on the ball. If you're going to compare Edwards to some of the other uh, you know, backcourt prospects in that number one spot, he's probably the cleanest fit, I would assume. Um, and that would maybe give you some more athleticism pop. You can envision a scenario where maybe a year down the road, these guys are the young, fun you know, kind of upcoming team that, uh, you know, can put up 130 on any, every given night. And, you know, maybe they're giving up 135 every given night too, but uh, at least they're they're entertaining and, and just uh, a little bit less dreary than maybe some past Timberwolves teams. I could see that being one possible vision for them. Um, but I would be shopping that pick hard. I'm just not convinced they're going to get awesome offers that really, uh, you know, make them want to pull the trigger. And, your, your take on Weissman's not bad at all. You know, I think it would cover a few bases. You could potentially try to play him with Towns. It's a hedge against town being, Towns being unhappy and leaving. It's arguably the best player available, most talented player available, which is always a, you know, a, a good approach to take, especially if you're at that number one slot. Um, and so I think for all those reasons, it's, it's very defensible. All right, Michael, we'll double back with more draft talk later this week. And I encourage uh, all the Open Floor Globe members, if you have other favorite fake trades or, or draft takes, email them in, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We'll be glad to go through those as we get closer to the draft. It's only a little bit more than a week away. Incredible to say those words, Michael. Blows my mind. All right, guys, we're on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben Golver. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.